this seems to address the responsibility he has in punishing him, whereas mm-hmm. before he's been killed him, his whole family was sitting. And so it limits vengeance, but it also does something for the, the man in that it, it teaches him to be responsible. Very good. With children, and sometimes it's hard to Very good. And this whole section of scripture is 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 looking in that direction and teaching in that direction t- towards the children uh, for the children of Israel. And so we have uh, even the marrying the girl may be uh, in the man's eyes a a uh, a punishment, uh, a lifelong commitment that he has to make because of his actions. And in turn, she is taken care of indefinitely. So, very good. Thank you for that. That was very good. Okay, let's read verse 30. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. Um, The father's marital rights are what is under uh, consideration here. You know, we just shake our head and say, ooh, that's wrong. You know, it's kind of uneases us. (coughs) Please know that the term father's wife is used, the term mother is not in this, nor is the name, or, or is he called a son, this person who might uh, commit this transgression. Uh, there could be an extra marriage due to death. There could be uh, an extra marriage due to multiple wives. Uh, this kind of kind of hard to say there. So this is uh, pretty easy for us to understand. Um, that would be uh, perversion uh, to say the least. Any thoughts on tw- on 30 that you'd like to add? Remember, we talked before we started, the section right in here is kind of hard to talk about some of this stuff. We just kind of don't like it. <laughs> We'd like to just read that quietly in our closet and move along, you know, but it's good for us to discuss it. And it's meant for us to discuss because none of this is shameful for us, even though it is shameful, shameful conduct. When we hear it and makes us uneasy, perhaps that's good for us. Say, I, I think I shall not do that. And I think I shall not participate in that in any way. And I'm going to teach my children not to. So, Okay. Well, our target was getting to 24 and getting going on that. So hopefully we can get through 24 today. Anything wrapping up 23? Anything we left undone? Everybody's nice and quiet, so we'll move along. We'll move along. <clears throat> so this uh, little subsection right here, those forbidden to enter the assembly. Uh, this too is speaking to maintaining the sanctity of the congregation. So let's read uh, one through six together. Uh, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when they came out of Egypt... 
And because they hired, they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. Easy to see the repeated words there, isn't it? <clears throat> shall or shall not, if you will, enter the assembly of the Lord. That's what is being talked about. People forbidden from the assembly that would be the assembly to gather together and hear the word of God. That's, that's how I understand that phrase, that, uh, that statement there to enter the assembly. Now, of course, it's like six times here in these uh, few verses. And uh, the uh, point is well taken. Uh, that There's people that are not, they are forbidden to enter the assembly of the Lord. <clears throat> so here is a, just think with me a minute here in verse 1. Here's a physically altered man, uh, whether by his own choice, or an act of violence, or an accident, and he is physically damaged, he's incomplete. And that puts him in this category here. He's imperfect, and he is forbidden entrance. Um, it, it's interesting that something's so different than the way we understand things today. Back then, this physical limitation defined his state when it comes to worship and when it came to fitting in his physical uh, abnormality or fate physically uh, defined that and defined his reality there and he is excluded then without recourse um just a little aside, when, when I read this, anytime uh, this comes up, I think of the eunuch that Philip taught. This leaps into my mind. And um, I just love to uh, consider that account about that man because it, it kind of paints a picture of how a person back then that found themselves in this circumstance what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for those people, okay? And it does the same thing for all of us because we are incomplete too. So the idea, uh, the fact that uh, this man would have been forbidden, the eunuch would have been forbidden, uh, forbidden to us enter the assembly of the Jews that he had just attended. He probably had to stand outside. And he was on his way home when Philip saw him and in encountered when the Lord said, take over the chariot, he did. And he said, run and catch him. And he did. <coughs> and he was reading from Isaiah 53. And he said, I need help. I don't understand all this. Can you guide me? Or can someone guide me? I, I love the idea about that because it says later that Philip... I don't have this all written down verbatim. I'm just remembering it piece by piece. 
that Philip started there and preached Christ to him. And I just love to turn over to Isaiah 56, and I like to in my mind, I'm seeing some heads nodding, where it says in Isaiah 56, I'm sure Philip would have taken this eunuch to read this, uh, because he was only three chapters away. I'm speculating, but it says in Isaiah 56, uh, 3 through 5, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and, to, uh, and <clears throat> choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of the sons of, and of, of better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Wow. What a shot in the arm to a man that was just refused entrance to the, to the meeting place. No doubt. Uh, <clears throat> I just love that little aside story there that would put these people, help us understand someone who would find themselves in this circumstance. So, yeah, David. Yeah, it's not just down the street, is it? That's right. It would have been, it would have been uh, I don't know, is it about 1,500 miles? I think it sticks in my mind, that, that traversing there. Mark? To, to the limitation that he was given, uh, <clears throat> they just weren't allowed to enter the assembly. You know, limited access because of physical imperfections, which I think are painting a picture of uh, spiritual things that we struggle with and what Jesus' blood takes care of for us and all of us together. Because it was Jesus' blood who redeemed all those who followed the law and did their best. And. Well, I think maybe there had to be limited access so that when the walls were torn down, we could see the difference. We could see what Jesus' blood did. Nina? Uh, a question. I'm, I'm reading all of this, and when God did the temple, he laid the law out for Moses, he was on the mountain and said, through these words, who is making these laws? Is it the Jewish leadership? Because I'm not seeing any more of it. I, the best answer I would have is there was many other things given to Moses that weren't written on the tablets. But he had them. And he was the, would disseminate that information. And this is, this is some of that being done. Moses talking? Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, we've not we've not got to Joshua yet. He'd be the next speaker. So, if that that's my understanding, uh, could certainly be misinformed, but that's always been my understanding on it. <coughs> um, but yes, I know because we we run across that question occasionally. It's, there's just so much more than the Ten Commandments. Those were like the flagship in, in the icon of God's law, but it was much, much deeper than that those tablets of stone could hold. So it was in his head, yeah. And, and to that point, there are a number of passages in the New Testament, uh, Matthew 22, for example, okay. where the Sadducees come and ask Jesus about whether marriage is, which is a new wrong. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, throw that out. Moses said that, God didn't say that. Very good. Very good. Very good. In Deuteronomy one three, it says Moses spoke to the people all that the Lord had told. All that the Lord had spoken. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be hard probably to carry around uh, the stone tablets that all of God's law was written on, (laughs) wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Absolutely. Thanks for all, all good comments. Okay. Well, I'll uh, come back from my side here a little bit <coughs> and uh, look at this aspect of illegitimate birth. You know, um, in verse 2, uh, talks about the, uh, this would be a Hebrew man uh, who'd fathered a child with a foreign mother. Okay, that's why I understand the, the Hebrew on it. Uh, this is forbidden to the 10th generation. And uh, here's another thing where this, this individual has, they have no control of their circumstance. This is the offspring of, of a Hebrew man and a foreign woman, and, and the offspring is in this circumstance. It's kind of hopeless in a way, isn't it? Now, God will, God will, is taking care of all that for it, but, but we, we see God here presenting a picture of what he wants his people to be, and that's pure and holy. And it's even being uh, presented in a physical way here to help their understanding, because it's of manifold depth, I believe. And I think we can look back and see it perhaps even better than they could, or to another degree, because we we have the rest of the story. Nine. Well, God does that, doesn't he? I don't know why I'm popping and cracking up here. Sarah. 
So does the tenth generation refer to the actual tenth generation, or is tenth meaning complete? Well, I think when we read, um, let me find it here. Like the Ammonite and the Moabite in verse 3 um, uh, says, None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. I don't know if that, if that offering of the tenth generation is just an indication that it's never happening. Or if, if, if they start marking them off on the wall, you know, until they get to the tenth. I don't know. But... It uses the uses the word not will not ever. So I don't know. It's just not a good circumstance. I can't answer that for sure. Now, when there's a shorter term, it certainly meets. I don't know if if that is the at the tenth generation you're just talking about forever. I don't know. I, I know I can't go back that far in my family, uh, but the Jews probably could. They probably could. So, good question, lousy answer. Uh, everything's gone. <laughs> the law is taken down in verse 6, you know, that continues that thought. The end rights and the end rights. He says, You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all the days of your, your ever. Yeah. So, I think, I mean, the way that I read this is that this is a way of saying this is a forever thing. Yeah. Yeah, down in, and down in verse 8, it says the sons of the third generation you are born to them may enter the assembly. There's a permission given there. And the third generation, if you kind of count back and figure out where they're at, that's, that's, that's the generation they're in. So <clears throat> it's either that generation can or after that generation they can. I'm not sure. But... Uh, would be the answer on verse, would be the indicator on verse 8, I believe. Uh, we're probably over uh, over studying it, but uh, it's just interesting. And it certainly makes us look at the circumstances under which we live. And we just say, praise God. Hallelujah. Uh, God dealt with these people. We have to understand, God dealt with these people lovingly in verse 5 he says for the because the Lord your God loves you he loves them just like he loves us and and this was enough for them so uh, I I just think we have to uh, keep that in the back of our mind sometimes when we have questions it's okay for us to have questions about things because we don't live back at this point in time and there's things we may not understand because of that Justice. It's helpful that God explains why, uh, to me, at least in verses 3 through 6, uh, these people were a spiritual enemy to the day enticed them to idolatry. Amen. Just, Amen. I don't want to jump to today application too quickly, but it just puts me in mind of uh, the casual acquaintance uh, we make with people who would entice us to sin and morality with us. Entertainment or relationships, and we're just we're pretty casual about that. And then we come into the assembly as though it's not affecting us. Uh, and here God is pointing out to his ancient people 
I take this really seriously. They tried to get you to send this. You cut them off in the wrong So maybe we should be a little more on guard yeah and here's what we might think harsh treatment towards them would strike fear and respect in their hearts so uh, it's, it's God revealing himself through, through these uh, not evers these, person, these, these people are, are not to uh, participate in any way <coughs> should, should cast fear into the hearts of those who are listening to this instruction and taking it to heart. Um, I was trying to see if I had anything else I wanted to mention about that. Um, yes. She came to my mind too, and Boaz, uh, and were there, was were there off. What, I figured one of you troublemakers would bring Ruth up. <laughs> Just happens to me, it's my neighbor. <laughs> I don't know. I do not know. Because I drew the same question to Mark. What about, but you know, we see, we see those names pop up in the lineage of the Lord. Uh, Sarah? I have a note in uh, this Bible that says, the masculine forms indicate that a male Ammonite or Moabite is meant. Female proselytes like Ruth of Moab could marry male Israelites. How accurate that is, I don't know, but um, that's a, a possibility that it was talking about the males. I also find it interesting that whenever we brought up Balaam, um, verse 2 addresses in some sense, what happened as a result of Balaam's influence. I mean, in that, you know, the men were enticed to go into the, to the Ammonite women and, and all of that, and certainly there were children born of some of those unions. Oh, certainly. And Absolutely. So it, go, it goes together a little bit more directly than it might seem. Very good, very good. That's, uh, that's helpful, too. The, uh, <coughs> of course, verse 7 to verse 8, Edom's being Esau's ancestors are granted permission. Third generation, you know, uh, the, t- the time runs out on them, uh, and, and things are okay. Uh, and as best I can tell, that's the current generation. Um, verse 8 would be, Egypt gets a pass not for their disdainful treatment of the Israelites at the end of the years, but at their hospitality at the beginning to Jacob and to Joseph. Uh, so there, there's leniency and consideration given there. Other questions that I'm so poorly answering? It's good to talk about them though. Anything we're overlooking that we need to talk about here? Jamie? Oh, I'm Dave.
I think, I think for sure, uh, Daniel, the, the, uh, this is all a warning about stumbling because these things are all warnings on how uh, the Israelites, to be the holy people, the set-apart people that God wants them to be, uh, they live like this. As stringent as some of these things seem to us, we are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and we, we have a little trouble thinking like this. But at this time, this is what they had, and they, they had to uh, accept it from the God from, from the God that we know and come to the same conclusions about him, that he is holy. And for no other reason than that, they would follow him with, with fear and trembling. And that's, that's what's being presented, I believe, because God is, he is honing and, and molding and modeling these people to be the people he needs them to be. Uh, let's read this next section uh, so we can move along. 9 through 14. Who would read that for me? I'm going to save my voice a little bit. I have a tendency to get hoarse. Sarah, you would read out nice and loud. When you go out as an army against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If there is among you any man who is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he must go outside the camp. He may not re-enter the camp. But it shall be when evening approaches, he shall bathe himself with water, and at sundown he may re-enter the camp. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there, and you shall have a spade among your tools, and it shall be when you sit down outside. You shall dig with it and shall turn to cover up your excrement. 14? Since yes, 14. the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, Therefore, your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. Okay, very good. So this seems to point to a military encampment here, this direction, uh, because it's talking about going out as an army against your enemies. So it's a little different than the home camp, if you will, uh, that they, they would be experiencing as they traveled around in the wilderness. And this preparation is, of course, thinking forward into the conquest of Canaan and what's going to take place there. You know, so this is going to be uh, uh, apropos, if you will, to that, to that also. So <coughs> it sets the bar for the, this, uh, verse, this verse, 14, sets the bar, if you will, for, for the, the whole se- section of, of being uh, for the camp to be holy and presentable to God, and pleasing to God, if you will. Important for soldiers because down in 14 says, or he will turn away from you. Uh, no soldier wants that to take place as, as an individual or as an army. We know what happens when that happens, don't we? Uh, there's failure. There's, there's, there's utter defeat. And so they understand that concept. Uh, don't want God turning away from you uh, when you're uh, wielding the sword. Uh, you want him uh, leading the way and fighting the battle with you and for you. Uh, so this idea in verse 9 there of individual purity uh, and, and camp purity is being... Uh, presented in this block of text. Uh, 
you know, uh, ver verse 10, if there's anyone among you who is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he must go outside the camp. He may not re-enter the camp. You know, we can turn over, turn over and uh, uh, read in Leviticus all kinds of things that make a person unclean. They are being instructed what those are and what to do about it. That very simple thing. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Leviticus 15 has a lot of that in it. And so if a man finds himself unclean for whatever reason, one given here, but whatever reason, he's to deal with it, isn't he? So he can be presentable and be of service to God and glorify and honor God with his, with his person. Um, Bodily discharges, uh, law of Moses, bodily discharges make, make one unclean. needs to be addressed before any kind of normal living resumes. You stop what you're doing, you deal with it. What, what do we say about sin in our life? This is like a foreshadowing, I think, of sin, this idea of becoming unclean. I don't think of very many places, and I didn't go dig, but where they said, well, when you find yourself unclean, wait about a week, and then you can, you can do this and be okay. It's not. It's always just like that, isn't it? It's to be dealt with. So, <clears throat> do not wait. Act accordingly and deal with it. Um, the, uh, he's got a bathroom, bathroom phase in here. You know, it's, it's a... When you go to the outhouse, without the house, because you, you live in the wilderness, it got tickled. It's a, you think about the idea that you, when you do that, you take your shovel with you. Right? It talks about a spade here. <clears throat> Among your tools, it says. So whatever those other tools are, uh, it's to take care of your personal hygiene and your uh, your your the mess you make when you do that. So, as we we, we giggle and laugh, but that's that's just part of living. And, and God God said that they don't get to leave that laying around for other people. It's inconsiderate, and it's not something God wants to see. He expected Israel to have a a clean and orderly camp, just like some good, holy, pure, righteous people would have and maintain that would bring honor to him. Um, even these things needed to be talked about because there are people. I mean, these things come with people, don't they? Yeah. So it says the reason they're supposed to do that in 14 is because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you up to the enemies before, therefore your camp must be holy. Yeah. So God is physically well, he walked in the garden. I don't know what that looks like. To physically walk, he had to put on, he had to put on some flesh. Right? Or was he present among them and nothing escaped his eye? You know? That's how I understand, that's how I understand it. I don't really understand it because we don't know for sure. But... He was in their midst, just like the song we sing. And we believe him here every time we gather, don't we? And uh, 
was he was he physically there? Uh, I don't think to the point of adorning flesh, and never was until he sent his son. But that's my understanding, and it's limited for sure. <clears throat> but it's like he's one of you. Why would you not take take care of your camp? Why would you not? Uh, uh, be good stewards of what God has offer, offered, uh, authored for you to maintain. Other thoughts along those lines? I guess maybe if he's walking in the camp, then it doesn't. They're told to go out of the camp to do their business, right? So uh, I don't know if there's anything being alluded to there or not, but the. The idea of God walking in the midst of your camp is just his holy presence there. And their need to be holy and conduct themselves that way is what I see in the takeaway I, I take from it. Uh, God expects that, expected that of them, and he expects that of us. He's no different today than he was then. But they certainly wanted him on their... Uh, in their presence and on their side because he had, he had provided them uh, instruction on how to deal with these, these little issues, these living issues that come up that they might glorify him and uh, that uh, he could walk among them and be in their presence when they were out on a campaign uh, to, uh, to battle. Let's look at 15 and 16. You shall not hand over his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns, where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. Commentators seem to agree this is speaking about foreign slaves and foreign masters. Just think about it. They're getting ready to campaign. They're going to go into, they're going to go into the promised land, right? What's going to happen? You try to paint this picture in your mind. What's that look like? Well, when this million-man army, or however big it was, comes in there, what's going to happen in Canaan? A lot of people are going to just bolt. I, you know, just run. Now, there was plenty of fighting that took place. Some of the cities were hard to throw, throw overthrow. Some of them weren't overthrown. And that's why some of the Canaanites and, and Jebusites and Hivites, and they were still there, hanging around causing trouble after the fact. But if you think about these, these foreign, uh, foreign slaves and foreign masters, the foreigners are these people that are resident in the land. And you can see in this turmoil, the, 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 uh, the slaves could easily get misplaced or get away. And if they're under the thumb of a demanding master, they might look at the Israelites as their chance for escape, a place to run. And maybe had even heard some things about, you know, what kind of people they are and wanted to be there. So we see this favorable treat treatment being presented to us, don't we? <coughs> so I kinda, that kind of helps me maybe think about the fact that you know, well, how often is that going to happen? Well, it could have been a whole lot because they're about to go in there and overthrow the whole area. And all the slaves there would have found the opportunity to 
get out of town. Uh, interesting, if you think about it, um, I was trying to think of the account here, if I can find it in my notes. Oh, it's First Samuel 30. Uh, when Ziklag had been overthrown in, in the time of David, and Ziklag was overthrown and burned by the Am- Amalekites, David's wives, and Hinnom and Abigail, had been taken in the raid. There was an Amalekite-owned Egyptian slave who had been abandoned due to, to an illness. He'd left behind, abandoned, if you will, by, by the uh, Amalekites. And he, he asked these same considerations of David in verse 15. He said, swear to me you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. I thought that was just interesting that he begged this same thing, almost like he knew the law that the Israelites had and used it used it before them. I, I think that's interesting. Is that coincidental? Absolutely could be, but I just found it intriguing that he asked this very thing of David. And David was very benevolent to him when he came to him and treated him very well, too, if you go back and read in 1 Samuel 30. I thought it was an interesting concept. Uh, foreign nations back then, these ones that they're getting ready to overthrow, uh, were intolerant of slaves who fled from their masters. Um, it was often a death sentence. Uh, if you, you have to go back and read. I did not, but the commentators did. Uh, had re- read the historic law codes of those nations. And not only was it, were they stringent, that if you were caught harboring a slave that belonged to someone else, they'd kill you. So we see how sensitive this situation is and how serious it was. They were property. It was like stealing a guy's plow horse, you know, or his ox or whatever the case may be. You were guilty. So <clears throat> interesting. We think about that. And why is that such a big deal? Well, Israel had themselves had been had been slaves in Egypt so many years, hadn't they? And they had tasted the bitterness of that. And to the point where they cried out to the Lord. And here, now they are to give consideration and even honorable treatment to people that come to them from these same circumstances. That's kind of neat, isn't it? The very grace and mercy that God showed them, they were to show it to these men that came, these people that came running to them, fleeing from their bondage. Of course, then we can make, we can make a parallel, can't we? Uh, we're all in bondage to sin, and he has released us. He has saved us and shown us mercy and grace. They were to be holy. Um, Purity in worship, this next couple verses here together, 17 and 18. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or wages of a dog into the house of the Lord, (coughs) the Lord your God, for any votive offering, uh, 
For both these are an abomination to the Lord your God. This is really easy to understand. Of course, just, you know, the idea of acts of ritual immorality is just disgusting to us. And should have been disgusting to them. But, you know, they're getting ready to walk into a land where they're going to be, it's going to be all around them. And God is preparing them. Letting them know how treacherous that is and how it can cost them so terribly dearly. Uh, and he's warning them of his disdain for such living, such lifestyle. You think about King Josiah when they finally got to the book of the law and read it. And, you know, King Josiah, he tore down the houses uh, where such acts took place. Uh, talking about the houses where male prostitutes were. Cult, cult prostitutes. Second Kings twenty three seven speaks of that, Bob. Yeah, what, what you just mentioned. Uh, the NIV says female prostitute or male prostitute instead of dog. There's a guy who kind of likes dogs. It's not a dog. Okay. All right. All right. All golden retrievers are good, you know. With, and lab and Labradors. Okay. We and we understand this. Let me see what we can. The bell has has wrong. Um, let's go ahead and try to do 19 through 19 and 20 at the least. Um, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. So fellow Israelites were not to extract profit when in actuality an act of benevolence is probably what should be considered at that point in time. It is talking about a loan. I don't look at a loan as being completely benevolent. Benevolence would be provision uh, without payback, but uh, I think it leans towards the heart of a heart of benevolence for someone even to willing to make the loan, because uh, there's always the risk that if someone is financially obligated to a point where they can't provide for themselves, they may may never be able to pay you back, and we we know that and have considered that, but in uh, before in other studies, <laughs> but the foreigner you could charge the foreigner. They were set aside different. So that what he was doing here is differentiating the relationship that Israel was to have with the foreigners and with their family, their spiritual family. And it was a lot different, wasn't it? It was a lot different. And I think it's just striking a contrast for us. Actually, um, I think it's when there's an opportunity or a need, it, it should be a catalyst for us to be benevolent and giving. And I know I see it among this family here all the time. We're all used to it, uh, how there seems to be a pinned-up demand for us to want to share with one another. And that is the very thing that is being taught here for these people. What, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing.
Well, we didn't get through it, but I don't care. I'll tell Tommy, and he'll have to do it. Did somebody, did I miss anybody for a last comment before the kids come down? Okay. We'll let Tommy start at 21 on Sunday. This was chapter 23 of Deuteronomy. We stopped at verse 21.